Our series on the grace of God ends today. I'm going to do one uh, sermon on Ephesians 5, end of Ephesians 5, next Sunday. Then John Glass will be here. And then after that we'll get into Ephesians chapter 6 where we talk about Christian warfare. The armor of God and so on. And uh, we need a couple of weeks to do that together. So this is the last on the Grace series. Felt the Lord helping me do this, but I, when I've said this today, I've, I've, that's, that's it. That's what I feel I have to say this time. Our topic today is fruitfulness. That's the headline. In this summer series, we've seen that whilst mercy is the start of our experience of the grace of God, the pardon, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, adoption, grace goes beyond mercy. It starts with mercy, but it doesn't end with mercy. Grace doesn't just bring us forgiveness, but also brings us change and new life. Grace teaches and empowers us to live in faith and obedience to the Lord. Grace, we saw in Romans 5, reigns over us. And when it does, we then reign in life. Because we're under authority. That's one of the things I didn't say last week. Was People like to quote you know, the promise of the Old Testament. Uh, you will be the head and not the tail. But there's an if to that. If you submit to me, you will be the head, not the tail. When you've got a head, you can be the head. But if you reject that head, you ain't no head. Yeah? <laughs> it doesn't work. No matter how loud you, pro- you prophesy it. It's because you're under authority. I know that was a moment of revelation for some people. I too am a man under authority. We belong to Jesus. We're serving him. We're living for him. Remember too, last week I used that expression, real faith for real life. We're not talking about fake faith, just saying stuff. It's doing things as well. If someone only talks about loving people but never does anything for them, we soon get tired of hearing the words. Yeah. And, and it, Christianity is more than words. It's action. It's deeds. And grace prepares us for glory. So grace produces fruit. The Bible clearly states that we are measured by fruitfulness. It's the measure of our hearts, of our faith, of our character. It shows the measure of grace that we are living in, whether we live by the overflowing grace of God, Romans 5, 17, and the gift of righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ, or we choose to live on small rations, or we've been tricked and deceived into thinking that's all we can live on, that's all we can, we can receive of the goodness of God. So, if a person is filled by the grace of God, they will be fruitful. There'll be evidence of that grace of God. If a person's filled with the Holy Spirit of God, they will be fruitful. If a person is filled with Christ Jesus, they'll be fruitful. Remember that our Lord Jesus said quite a bit about fruitfulness. In the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that a tree is known by its fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit and a good tree produces good fruit. You can walk in an orchard and pin a notice on a tree, this is a good apple tree, but if it only produces little old sour apples, it's not what the label says. And you can pin a note on somebody saying this is a Christian, but if they don't live as a Christian, the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus says of people, including in context that prophets and preachers and teachers, you will know them by their fruits. You, you, you're entitled to examine, which is what, this is why the people who preach to you over thousands and thousands of miles through the TV channels can get away with anything, can't they? Because you don't know them. You don't see them the rest of the week. 
But the man who preaches to you on a Sunday, you get to see him more often than that. And you, you know them by their fruits. That's why there's a danger in this remote kind of thing, even if it's just the conference thing. This person's up there, you know, eight feet above contradiction, but you don't know how they live. You will know them by their fruits, Jesus says. And then in the parable of the sower, or the four soils as well, Jesus tells us that the good seed of the gospel, it's good seed, it's the good news, doesn't produce the same fruit in everyone. In first, the first group, the birds of the air take the seed away. It doesn't even take root. Birds of the air are a symbol of evil in Scripture very often. Powers of darkness take away the seed. It doesn't even take root. In others, it takes root, but grows for only a short while, and then there's trouble or opposition, and it withers away. In others, it grows, and, but it's unfruitful. Due to, and listen, these are not my words, these are the words of Jesus, taken from the Gospels. Due to the worries of this age, the seduction of wealth, the desires for other things, and the pleasures of this life. Those things choke this believer, this Christian, so they become unfruitful. In the last group, there's fruitfulness, but in different measures. Some 30-fold. So that means in a very simple illustration, you get 30 grains for every one you plant. So it, it's not a great return, but it's, it's a return. 60-fold or 100-fold. Then in his teaching in John's Gospel, Jesus says that he is the true vine, which is really to say true Israel, because the vine is a symbol of Israel. Jesus is the true vine. And the branches in him that do not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown away. But those that bear fruit... His father will prune so they bear more fruit. Uh, you'd like to think that was good news, but pruning isn't always a comfortable procedure. It involves sharp objects applied to delicate parts. He prunes them that they may bear more fruit. Just one verse from John 15 there, where Jesus says, Remain in me, and I in you. This is about close relationship. Just as a branch is unable to produce by itself unless it remains on the vine. If you cut it off, it isn't going to bear any fruit. So neither can you unless you remain in me. What produces fruit is the life of Jesus. The grace of God. The work of the Spirit. It's not you trying ever so hard to be a good Christian. It's a, it's a flow of life. It's a flow of relationship. Jesus in you and you in him. When Barnabas was sent to, Jeru- to Antioch from Jerusalem to check out the reports that the Lord was at work there, particularly amongst people who were completely Gentiles, they'd never been Jewish or, 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 or proselytes at all. When he arrived at Antioch, this is the scripture, He saw there the grace of God. And he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. What did he see when he got there? Did they have halos around their heads? Did they float six inches above the floor with a silly grin? He saw the way these people were living and acting and reacting. He saw what they were doing 
And he went, wow, the grace of God is here. There was fruitfulness. Things that you could experience, you could observe. Fruitfulness. See, you see fruit and you taste fruit. I didn't even tell Carol, but I picked the last plum off our plum tree yesterday while I was out there working in the garden. It was the last plum on the plum tree. I went, yes. I saw it and I tasted it. Fruit is something you can see and you can experience. So he didn't see halos around their heads. So here's a couple of punchlines for you. Grace without fruit isn't grace. Old John Owen, the old Puritan, said, if grace doesn't change him, and I don't know what it does. Grace without fruit isn't grace. It's, it, it claims to be, but it, it's got the label, but... Mm. And a barren faith is no faith. James says, faith without works is dead. Talk about works in a minute. Let's think about what kind of fruit does grace produce in us. If we've received the overflowing grace of God and the gift of righteousness, where's the fruit? What can you see? What changes? What can, what, what, what's different? The first thing is this, gratitude. Thanksgiving. First thing up. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. I'm going to go into the context, but he says, indeed, everything is for your benefit, his work for the Corinthians and so on. So that grace extended through more and more people, the grace of God flowing from one person to another one, as people are brought in, people are being converted, people are being brought to faith in Christ. Grace is being extended to more and more people, and it results in thanksgiving increasing to God's glory. The experience of grace produces thanksgiving, gratitude. I, I fear sometimes that we know how to say when the preacher says God is good, we know how to say all the time. But how, do we ever as an individual, just on our own, say, my God, you are good to me. Thank you. Amen. Thanksgiving needs to be a personal transaction yes. as well as a corporate one. Yes. Just as praise too. The Psalms, then the epistles mention Thanksgiving again and again and again. On my Bible software, I can look up how often a word appears in, in scriptures. And you, it goes, da 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 Psalms, da 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 da, da. epistles. <laughs> Thanks and Thanksgiving. Those, those particular parts of the scriptures talk to us again and again. And Paul doesn't just say, it'd be really nice if you thank God. He says, rejoice, give thanks. It's an instruction, it's a command. Oh, I don't like commands, get over it. We are commanded by Scripture to rejoice in God and to, be th- and to be thankful to Him. If God has been good to us and is good to us again and again, the very least we can do is be thankful. And I've commented before that the word grace and the word thank or thankfulness are in m- many European languages very connected. Gracias is thank you. Grazie in Italian. But in English, we've got these northern European things, danke, dank, thank. And I'm, I, I think we're poor for that. Because grace produces graciousness, grace, thank, thanksgiving. The fruit of lips that give praise and thanks to God for his goodness, according to Hebrews 13, verse 15. So grace produces thankfulness. One old harvest hymn, festival, harvest festival hymn says, Come ye thankful people, come. 
And I think we, I think it's a missing part of 21st century Western Christianity that we are not thankful. And I've been to other places in the world <clears throat> a couple of times. And I can tell you this, my brothers and sisters in places where they've got almost nothing know how to praise God and give thanks. They know how to rejoice and be happy in God. And I think we've got far, far more and we are far less grateful. What, had, what happened there? Is it this seduction of wealth and the cares of this life? Is there something happening there that's, that's cut, choking this fruit of thankfulness? We're just so caught up in what we've got and dealing with that, you know, managing the bank account and whatever, it is, whatever else. These things are necessary, but are we caught up in that so we, we, we're choked off from being grateful and thankful? Grace produces gratitude, thankfulness. Then grace produces good works. That's right behavior, right actions, practical righteousness. We talked about righteousness a week or two ago. Righteousness is God calling us righteousness, accounting us as being acceptable, as acceptable as Jesus, who stands in our place and makes us acceptable. Therefore, then work, righteousness works out practically in our lives as we begin to live the life that is appropriate to our calling. We live as the children of God. Dear children, being obedient, being responsive to him, not rebellious, not stupid, not running around with a, with a, like a chicken with a head cut off, you know, doing all this stupid stuff. We live appropriately. That's righteousness. What we do doesn't make us any more acceptable. It's because we're accepted that grace works in us to be living an appropriate lifestyle. Staying away from some of the things that we know already know are wicked and evil. Behavior that befits that calling and relationship. Grace reigns through righteousness. Grace reigns through practical application and change in our lives to eternal life, to the life of the ages. In that great chapter about grace, not Romans 5, but Ephesians 2, Paul's very clearly stated, we are saved not by works, but by grace through faith. It's not by adding what we do, but by grace through faith. But having established that, he then says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Having been accepted, having been changed, having been redeemed, born of God, we are now created to go and do those good works. Not to form a scorecard, but because we are now that person which God has prepared ahead of time so that we would walk in them. Now, let me talk about good works for a minute. I want to challenge some thinking here because there's many of us who grew up with a background of kind of mythology about Christianity. And it seems to be two of the major world religions, both Roman Catholicism and Islam, have a, a doctrine of good works which I, I do not believe is the Bible one. You know, you, you kind of do all, you do the bad stuff, but then you do the good stuff, so the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. We, we, we knew some famous, you know, uh, some famous people, dead now and gone, but who seemed to think they could live like that. I'm doing all this bad stuff, but you know, God knows I do this stuff as well. Good works. And then people think that the good works is things like, well, doing religious stuff, or doing charity stuff. Or helping, an, helping a blind person across the road. 
I, oh, I did a good work today. What was that? Oh, I did this. That is not the way the Bible uses the expression good works. It means the way you live all the time. Yes. Amen. It's a whole life. It's not that, oh, I did something nice for somebody. Oh, I hope you did. God bless you. Thank you. Good. But did you switch off as soon as you did it? Is there a, did you go back to the other way of living? Good works is living as a good person all the time. By the grace of God. God's prepared a whole lifestyle of good works. Not just the obvious bits of charity, helpfulness, care, you know, whatever. But just living with integrity. I mentioned Eddie Rouse earlier. A man of integrity. Truthfulness. You know when you stand with that person, they speak the truth to you. Every bit of life is panned out, mapped out for good works. That's the way the Bible talks about good works. All our decisions and actions, doing the right and wise thing every time, they're good works rather than bad ones. They're wise ones rather than foolish ones. They're righteous ones rather than unrighteous ones. They're God-honoring ones rather than God-dishonoring ones. They're good works. It's a way of life. Not just the obvious you know, little moments of charity or holiness or whatever else. The whole of life is good works. Grace produces that in us. Why? Because we're motivated and stirred and led and taught, even corrected. No, not that. Oh, okay, this. Led by the Holy Spirit into doing the right thing again and again and again. And good works are very much connected with godly character. Character. In Galatians 5, Paul doesn't write about the fruit of grace. He could have done. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. But it's really saying the same thing. He contrasts the works of fallen human nature with what grace through the Spirit produces in us. Let's go there. Ephesians 5.16 I say then, walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Flare is not dead, not just your literal body, but the, the nature which is bound into your body, human nature which is fallen, rebellious against God, dishonoring to God, wants to do its own thing and be sinful and mess itself up and create all sorts of trouble. Yeah? flesh. The flesh desires what is against the spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so you don't do what you want. You don't just follow instincts. You've got to follow the spirit. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. You're not being measured by thou shalt and thou shalt not. You're being led by the spirit. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. You can switch on your TV and you'll see them every evening. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, worshipping anything as God that isn't God, including money. Sorcery, that's manipulation. That's manipulating people. Sorcery. Hatreds, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, disagreements, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Because he's not trying to tell about everything in the world. It's just some of them. Bad list, isn't it? Who's saying he's drinking, partying? 
I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't receive the kingdom that is coming. But the fruit of the Spirit. Remember fruit? You see it, you taste it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There are similar lists in other scriptures. These are the hallmarks of the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But these are not just inward qualities. Oh, inside I'm, I'm very gentle and peaceable. That wouldn't be fruit. It's fruit because somebody can see it and experience it. Somebody else can see it and experience it. Can see it in you that you are full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. So it's in your actions and reactions and your interfacing, connecting with people that these things are fruit. You can be ever so holy within yourself for a bit. This is life lived amongst people where these things are hanging out there, being seen, being tested, being examined. The fruit of the Spirit. See, gentleness, that's when you're gentle with people, not when you're easy on yourself. (laughs) Goodness is the way you deal with people. Not just being good to yourself. Does being good to yourself mean having chocolate or abstaining from chocolate? See, that, that's how we fool ourselves one way or the other, different days. You know. Fruit of the Spirit. The grace and life that we receive from the Lord Jesus is lived out among others so they can see it, they can taste it. Character and works are really connected because character makes you do the things you do, but then sometimes the things you do form your character as well. So they're just intertwined. You can't separate them. Decisions and actions repeated produce character. And if you, if you don't want to be the way you are, you choose to start to do something differently so you reform the way you are. Just, you can do it simply. It takes about seven weeks to, form, to break or make a new habit of life. 40 days or so. Six to seven weeks. You don't have to be the way you are. No one of us needs to be the way we are. We can change by the grace of God. And that's by making, taking decisions and making actions. So let me say this to you. Don't wait until you think you can be like this, whatever it is. Choose to rely on the Holy Spirit to act that way and you will begin to change. Right? Because if you... Let's take an example. It may be a silly example. But someone wants to give up smoking. I want to give a smoke and I want to give a smoke and I want to give a smoke. No, there comes a morning when you don't buy the cigarettes and you, you, don't have, you don't even have matches in your pocket and you set out that day intending that today I'm not going to smoke. Right? And maybe you fail, but you just do it again and you do it again and you do it again. It's repeated decisions and actions that form a new way of living. Not just in terms of habits, but even in the way we are in character. And I tell you this, God's concerned for our character, more concerned for our character than our comfort, which I I talked about snipping places. He's more concerned for our character than our comfort. And 
if we don't cooperate, there'll be stuff that comes into us, comes to our lives that will, that will be shaping us anyway. It'll come through pressure. It'll come through opposition. It'll come through hardships. And you think, what's happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Because God's forming character. I remember one time in my life, the Lord said to me, David, if we can do this the easier way or the harder way, what do you, you choose? I went, oh, dear, dear. But character will be formed. Why? Because God is determined to form a family just like his son Jesus. He wants that character in the whole family. So character is formed by repeatedly doing what is right, whether you feel like it at that moment or not. It's not about consulting your inner feelings. It's consulting what is right in the fear of God. And then choosing to do it by the help of God. And gradually, you form a new character. Then, lastly, grace produces generosity. Again, these words are connected in other languages. Grace produces generosity. I've got 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in front of me, and I'm going to try not to quote too much of it. In those two chapters, second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul writes to the church of Corinth. Corinth is a big Greek city, a prosperous trading port. Um, and he points out to the Corinthians that they, in the collection that had been made for the saints in Judea, Jerusalem, there was a famine there, they were being you know, mistreated as well. So the, ch- the churches around the Mediterranean that Paul knew were gathering money together and he was going to take it to help the brothers and sisters in Judea, in Jerusalem, in that area. And in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he makes a powerful kind of presentation to the Corinthians. And he tells them that their, their distant compatriots in the north, the Macedonians, had been extraordinarily generous in their contribution to that collection for the saints. Now the Corinthians, the southerners, were almost certainly much better off than the people in Macedonia. Yet it was the poorer Macedonians who'd been moved by the grace of God to remarkable generosity. Let me read you a few phrases. Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. That hardly makes sense in English, does it? Their great joy, their deep poverty, overflowed into generosity. What's he saying? They didn't have much, but they were very generous with what they did have. He says that another way. They gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. Paul urges the Corinthians then to catch up with their brothers in the north. To follow this example of generous giving. To excel in this grace. He says, you're very good at the gifts of the Spirit and all of that kind of thing. But I I urge you to excel in this grace. The grace of what? The grace of giving. The grace of generosity. This is me, not Paul. Meanness of heart and tightness of hand are foreign to the reign of grace. If we claim that we're living under the overflowing grace of God, and yet we live like this, hand clenched around our coins, we're missing something. We haven't got it. We haven't caught it. 
And when we give without it really costing us anything, that's neither generosity nor is it sacrifice. It's interesting, the language of the Old Testament is more about sacrifice. The language of the New Testament is more about generosity. Because Jesus has made all the sacrifices for us, the number of sacrifices. But David wanted to buy a piece of land to set up the altar. The man said, you can have it. You can have it for nothing. And of course, that may have been a bargaining ploy in that Middle Eastern kind of way, but David said, he doesn't start, start immediately to say, how much is it worth and I'll give you that or whatever. He starts with this statement, shall I give to the Lord what costs me nothing? That I'm really, I really done miss? Shall I give to the Lord what costs me nothing? See, generosity doesn't say in its heart, how much must I give or, or how much can I not give? A spirit of generosity, this grace of giving, says in your heart, how much can I give? What can I aspire to? That's how Paul addresses the Corinthians on this. Let's go to a couple of verses. Remember this, he says to them, remember this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Jesus put it that this way, give and it will be given to you. The same measure you use will be measured to you. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You put a little bit in and you think God's going to give you a great deal back. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart. It's not a law thing. Not reluctantly or out of necessity because God loves a cheerful giver. That doesn't mean I can be miserable and not give all my life. I mean, it means I, got, I, need to, I need to get a grip with this. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you. People think, you know, you give money, you get money. No, 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 no. It's part of the whole grace thing. As we are gracious and generous, so grace flows to us. And it's not always money for money. It's just part of the whole covenant thing. The blessing of God. The blessing of God is not measured in pound, pound notes. But my giving to God faithfully and generously is part of his, this transaction of thanking him for his covenant of mercy, his covenant of grace, which overflows to me in all sorts of ways. He's able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work, not just those of giving. As it is written, this is talking about the generous man in the Old Testament, he scattered, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And again, righteousness there is not pound, pound, pound signs. It's the whole of your life. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. Let me remind you again that giving and tithing in particular is not law. Abraham tithed to the Lord hundreds of years before the law was given through Moses. 
Abraham is the patriarch, the father of faith, the example of being saved by grace through faith. That's how Paul argues it in Galatians and Romans. He's the example of how we are being saved, by grace through faith, through a covenant of mercy made by God. And yet, as a response of thanksgiving to God and as a response of the, to the covenant of God, Abraham tithed. There was no law that told him to. But there was a principle that he adopted. And we see it in his grandson, uh, Jacob, as well. Those who continue to argue against tithing usually do so because they don't want to give as much as a tenth. That's my experience in life. Oh, I don't like tithing. Well, go ahead and give as much as you want to, then. (laughs) And, you know, they look at you and say, what? Go Go and give as much as you want to. Because they're computing, if I dismiss tithing, I don't need to give as much as that. That's where most people come from when they dispute tithing. That's my experience. One or two, including one or two of my friends, say, I don't like the, tithe, I don't like the 10%. It, so is it okay if I give 15 or 20 instead? Because I'm more comfortable doing that. <laughs> You're not in a law. But how is it that a covenant of grace made by Jesus would lead us to suppose we can be less generous than people were under the old covenant, under Moses? Oh, you know, no, we, can be, we don't need to be as faithful and generous as they were because we're under a covenant of grace. I, what? Grace excels law. Grace is more than. What we receive from the Lord is more than. So surely what I give to him should be more than it should expre- It should be an expression of gratitude and faithfulness to my God who supplies all my needs. I, I can't get around this idea of, you know, it's okay to give less than a tithe. I think that, that is like, uh, let me say again, meanness of heart and tightness of hand are foreign to the grace, to the reign of the grace of God in our lives. Let me remind you also that the way we handle money is a heart issue. It's a measure of our hearts. And scripture tells us plainly to keep ourselves free from the love of money. I had somebody once said to me, I'd love money if I had it. You don't have to have it to love it. Do you remember falling in love with somebody when you saw them? Hopefully that's your spouse now. (laughs) You didn't have them, but you wanted them. You person to be your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Love doesn't have to have, it longs. And you can love money just by really daydreaming about it. Hoping and planning for it. Buying your scratch cards and your lottery tickets. That's love of money. I haven't got it, but I, I want it. We accuse rich people of loving money. Poor people love money too because they want it so much. If that's what their heart is, you understand? I'm not saying it's because, because they're poor. I'm saying because if, the, if there's, a, if there's a, you know, a desperation, a, a kind of a, a love of money. Jesus warned us in this way. No one can be a slave of two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. In fact, the word he used there was a word meaning a a, a pagan god called mammon. You can't serve God and mammon, money. 
Those who God enables to make wealth, to create income, uh, need not just to live well for themselves, but to learn how to bless others. Maybe create employment, maybe create micro-businesses. How can I do something that creates wealth for others, that gives them a better standard of living? Some of the great Victorian entrepreneurs uh, ran big businesses. The you know the, 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 the people who ran you know soap factories and then car industries and stuff. They they built towns for their workers, and the housing was better than the housing that had ever been built there before. They don't look great now, chopped to dance, but they were better than the housing that had been because they wanted to improve the lives of the people who worked for them. We need some Christian business people today who are not interested not just in more money in their bank but more money flowing into more people's pockets to create a better standard of living for as many people as I can influence. But God help us, if, if money wraps its tentacles like, like one of those black inky octopuses around your heart. Do you know what Jesus said? The cares of this world, the seduction of riches, the seduction of wealth will choke you. It's one of the surest ways to being unfruitful as a Christian is to be wrapped up in money for money's sake. We've said so far that it is possible. Let me go back to the, the, the seeds and the soils again. Let me, I should have said it there. It is possible, says Jesus, not my, in my opinion. Jesus says it's possible to be a believer and be unfruitful or be fruitful or more fruitful or very fruitful. Can you accept that? It is possible to be a believer and yet be unfruitful or be fruitful, more fruitful or very fruitful. And it depends upon the soil of our hearts how we receive the word of God's grace and in fact the grace that it brings to us. How we cooperate with God. Yeah. How we receive from him and how, we, re- how we, we respond back to him. That's the difference. It makes all the difference. Gratitude. Good works. Godly character. Generosity. But here's the thing to finish up. We're told... In a couple of places, but I'll go to 2 Peter, to grow in grace. Wherever we are today, and some of you may feel a bit like you're being measured. Well, we, grow, we measure a child to prove they're growing. And they don't look like they're growing every day, but over time they do. They grow. We are told in Scripture to grow in grace. That's grow in the way we respond to grace and the fruit that grace produces in our lives. 2 Peter 3.17 Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, and Peter's context is he's warning them against false teachers and prophets. Be on your guard so that you're not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That means it's possible to. It also means we ought to. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. Fruit doesn't grow overnight. If you stand in an orchard looking at the trees, you'll be disappointed. 
Godly character is not grown in a day, but over time. We're to grow in grace, yet we do that with intention on our part. It is something we are choosing, something we're seeking, something we're pursuing, we're recognizing, I need to grow. I need to cha- I'm changed, but I still need to be changed. By the way, that's what sanctification is about. We are, we are sanctified to the Lord by the death of Jesus, and now we're being sanctified. That way of life, the character of Christ is being built into us. There's a process of change. We need to choose to be changed. And there are moments when we're, we're desperately wanting to be changed. And there are others when we're just happy that we don't feel challenged about anything just now. But every one of us needs to say, I'm here on a pilgrimage yeah. and I'm choosing the journey. Yeah. I'm choosing the journey yeah. to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Amen. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, that wasn't the last verse. This is the last verse. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Working together with him, Paul says, to the Corinthians again in the second letter, we also appeal to you, don't receive God's grace in vain. Well, how could that happen, receiving God's grace in vain? You know, I'm a Reformed theologian, I could wrestle with that one. Because Jesus says it's possible to receive the word, to be a believer, and yet produce no fruit. It's possible to be a believer and yet be unfruitful. So don't receive God's grace in vain. For he says, I heard you in an acceptable time and I helped you in the day of salvation. Look, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So let me bring this home. Whether you have never begun to believe and to follow the Lord Jesus before today, today is the time. Acceptable to God. Today is his day of salvation. Today is the day for you to begin to change. Or for others of us, having in the past believed in Jesus, but we realize today we've not done well since then. We recognize perhaps we're not very fruitful. This scripture applies to us too. Today is his acceptable day. Today is his day of salvation. Today, if we will call upon him, he will hear us and will respond to us. The age and reign of grace continues today and grace is available to every one of us today. The sweet, dear goodness of God that changes and reforms us and reshapes us is available to every one of us today. Today is the day for change to the grace of God. And the voice that even at this moment says to maybe some of you, it's hopeless, it's too late. That is not you or God. That is the voice of your enemy. Don't listen to any more. The voice of the enemy. Tell the voice to shut up and go away right now. God will hear you call upon him and will provide you with his grace. That is his promise. That is his faithful promise. In a a few minutes, we'll break bread together. And while we're doing that, we'll be praying for some people who are one prayer today, including at least one or two who's ill today. Uh, We'll pray for Shomi, who's not here. She's not well today. I've lost my voice. (laughs) Oh, dear. Let's pray together, shall we?
Lord Jesus, you know us. You know the the fruit, the measure of fruit. None, some, more. Right now is at work in us. The, The outcome, the produce of the work of your grace and of your spirit in us and through us. And we come to you, Lord, every one of us right now and say, let me grow in grace and in knowing you, Lord Jesus. For it's in being joined to you that we get our life. You in us, us in you. We produce much fruit that way. It's about a relationship with you, Lord Jesus, and Sometimes we don't maintain our relationships even with our spouses or whatever. But we forget for a day, for whole days at a time that our primary purpose in life is to know you and to enjoy you. That's where we find our grace, where we find our life, where we find change and growth day by day by day through knowing you and relating to you. Help us to keep first things first. To seek first you, yourself, your kingdom, your righteousness. To invite you to measure us and tell us and remind us how we're doing. Help us to change some more and grow some more. Because in all of our lives, you are to be glorified. You are to have the honor and the praise. And for your sake... People around us, whether believers or more particularly unbelievers, need to be tasting and seeing fruit of grace, fruit of the Jesus, fruit of the life in the Spirit. They need to see our gentleness and our peaceableness and our joy and our kindness and say, what is it about you? So help us, we pray, Holy Spirit, to grow more and more like our dear Saviour Jesus, who's done it all for us, but now he's working it in us by the grace of God. And if, let me just say this to anyone here who's not, you've never been a believer, you've been how you thought of yourself. Right now you can call on him, right in this moment. Say, Lord Jesus, please come and make me a new person. Begin to work in me so that my life changes too. I'm here, Lord. I'm here. You've, you've found me. I, why am I sitting here today? Because you, you want me to be in here. This. Lord Jesus, please, come and take over my life. Come and rule over me. Let your grace be now the thing that overshadows the whole of my life from now on. That leads me, that teaches me, that equips me through the Holy Spirit. I ask it for your honor, Lord Jesus. Amen.